I'm going to do a brief study of Psalm 62, and then I'm going to ramble. I'm going to vent a little bit tonight. But let's, let's do a, a study. The fellow's got the Bible for you. If you don't have one, raise your hand. They'll get it to you. You'll need it. We don't teach from the Bible. We teach the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can keep this Bible. Psalm 62. Psalm 62. Uh, oh, we need one more? Right there? Just let me know when you're ready. Well, we good? <laughs> All right. Let's pray. Lord, we ask your blessing upon tonight's study as we take a look at Psalm 62. And I, I pray that folks would really receive the title as uh, an admonition from you that, that they would have a calm resolve to wait for the salvation of God in the midst of trial and heartache and difficulty that they would learn from David, but more importantly from you, Lord, as you instructed him and he wrote the words faithfully, that all of us tonight would learn how to be patient in a time of adversity. So speak to us now, Lord, through your psalm. And Lord, as uh, we take a look at 9-11 and the issues that face us in this day, Lord, I, I pray that you'd put perspective to it for all of us and allow us to see things in a way we've probably never seen them before that we would, great, we would gain great insight and we would be stronger in our faith as a result. So, Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 62, uh, the title of it is A Calm Resolve to Wait for the Salvation of God. A Calm Resolve to, to Wait for the Salvation of God. And it is a psalm of David. So David wrote this one. And let me put it into context for you. It was written when David was an old man. Uh, it was written when David's son Absalom rebelled against him. And took the kingdom. It was written when Absalom had gotten Ahithophel, David's most trusted advisor, to side with him. Absalom stole Ahithophel and, and Absalom sided with David. And you, you've heard the story. I've, I've shared it a couple of times. Maybe for some of you haven't. Let me tell you a little bit about Ahithophel. It was said of Ahithophel in um, uh, 2 Samuel, actually first and 2 Samuel it speaks of him, but primarily it says of Ahithophel that when he spoke... It was as though the mouth of God itself were speaking. Ahithophel was David's most trusted counselor, and his counsel was the wisest in all of Israel. Ahithophel wasn't a Jew. He wasn't, a, he wasn't an Israelite. Ahithophel was a Gileanite, I believe he was. And um, he had a son whose name was Elam, E-L-A-M or Elam, um, and, uh, or excuse me, Eliam. His son's name was Eliam. And uh, Ahithophel was David's closest friend. And David would actually write in the Psalms that he, we, were, we were friends. I t we took sweet counsel together. We went to the house of the Lord together. He loved, he, uh, David loved Ahithophel, trust him with his whole heart. Uh, Ahithophel had given up everything to serve David because he was um, a Gentile. And he came into the court of an of a Israeli or Israelite uh, kingdom. And he served David faithfully uh, for all those years. And so what stunned David is that when, when Absalom lied, Absalom was David's son, when Absalom lied to David and said, I want to go up to Hebron and sacrifice, David believed his son. He went up there and um, he, he blew the trumpet and called all the elders to himself and then he declared a rebellion against his father. And, and word got back to David that Absalom was, was, was you know, committing um, a rebellion against his father and trying to take the kingdom, and he had so many siding with him. But David's heart didn't break until he heard word that Ahithophel was on Absalom's side. And David knew at that point, I'm finished. Every victory I've ever had was through the wisdom God had given Ahithophel. That guy knows the ups and downs and sideways, and he's amazing. And it, not only was he fearful because of the counsel, but his heart was broken because it was his best friend. And I think some of us in this room understand what it's like to be betrayed by our best friend. Yeah? Amen. You, know, it's, I, you know, I've shared with you guys the story about the, the pastor that discipled me, the college pastor that discipled me. Um, he was married, had three kids. And uh, first one to take me through the word, I went through the navigator study with him. I love this man, still do to this day. And to find out that, um, you know, I had met this girl in the, in the college group, and we'd gotten together, and, and I was a little backslidden, and we got involved and called off the relationship, and then she told me she was pregnant, and I wanted to repent of it and deal with it, and so we set up a, a wedding date, 
it wasn't Michelle, uh, set up a wedding date, and I went to go tell my parents, everybody else, and came to find out later, and I had gone to my college pastor and told him, and, and we went fishing up at Dinky Creek together, because that's what we'd do. And he was strangely silent. He brought his guitar, and he loved to play his guitar, but he didn't play it that whole weekend when we were fishing. It was just the weirdest weekend. Came to find out later that um, my college pastor, who was married and had three kids, had s- slept with my fiance prior to me getting engaged. And the baby wasn't mine. It was his. And it was one of those things in life where you just go, how? I mean, really? And, and, and he, was, he was struggling over whether or not to tell me. She was struggling. They were just going to go on with life with that. And, um, and you think, well, you know, Christianity's awful. I, I don't know if you guys, and, and you, you, you tend to, you know, you, you, your mind won't want to go there. And, and God is misrepresented by his people, but he never misrepresents himself. Uh, I, I remember Sarah Kelly, who played on Sunday. She was married to a, a uh, Assemblies of God pastor who used to beat the tar out of her, hospitalized her on multiple occasions. She can't have children because of what he did. There's scars. If you go up close, you can see. Brutalized her. And we were all worshiping on Sunday when she was singing. Have you ever heard a voice like that? Lyrics like that? That comes from a heart that's been broken over and over and over again. But a heart that's been given to the Lord. And through the times of adversity, when your best friend lets you down, or when you're absolutely overwhelmed, there's some things we want to do. We want to want to lash out, right? We want revenge. I mean, that's, that's the flesh. We want to revile where we've been reviled. We want justice, right? There's a strong temptation for justice. And, and it's hard to remain quiet when we're being attacked. And so David writes this psalm in the middle of his son. His son. I mean, your kid's messing with you. Your best friend's messing with you. Your whole world's falling apart. And you're old when you should be retiring and calling it quits. Everybody's dumping on you. And he's leaving, crossing uh, the, the brook Kidron. And their, their Shimei is throwing stuff at him and cursing him. And Abishai says, boss, let me kill him. And David says, leave him alone. He's being used to the Lord to humble me this day. David didn't look at the failure of, of all the people that were rebelling. He was examining his own heart before the Lord. It's fitting because he would write this psalm during this awful experience. And, and, and look how he begins it. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, truly my soul silently waits for God. You know who he's talking to? You know who he's talking to? Himself. Have you ever done that? You've got to just calm down and just wait. Just wait for the Lord. Just, you just got to calm down. No, you shut up. No, you shut up. No, don't answer yourself because you're going to go insane. People know that. And they're going to just shh, shh, shh. So he's talking to himself. He says, truly my soul silently waits for God. And from him comes my salvation. One of my favorites is, I'm waiting on the Lord, Pastor. Oh, I'm waiting. And I'm a little irritated. Where is he? Well, that's maybe waiting, but it's not silent. Let's apply that second portion. What do you say? Here's what you're doing. Here's what you need to be doing. You wait silently for the Lord. Let him speak to you. If you're talking, you're not going to be listening. If you're talking, you're not going to be listening. And usually when you're talking, you want revenge. You want to revile. You want justice. You want your case to be heard, right? You want somebody to listen to you. You want to corner them. You want to bend their ear. You want to exhaust them. Just that's. I'm not saying that you've done. I'm just saying that's typically what happens. Yes. I guess I'm making people upset. My bad. I'll just move on. <laughs> Truly, my soul waits silently for God. From Him comes what? My salvation. My salvation. All right. I, I don't know. You know, there's some folks in here. I know where your heart is with the Lord. And there's some folks in here. I have no idea. But I would say this. Salvation is a term that we can't move forward until we address it tonight. Because David clearly says, from God comes my salvation. From God comes my salvation. Uh, do you guys remember the vacation Bible school that we did this summer? Uh, we turned this into a kingdom and we saw that we had the king and we had the whole fun deal. And it was a wonderful play that we did uh, for the kids with the king and the kingdom. 
uh, well, Kathy Gravino brought one of her, her um, young people that uh, had gone and, and done drama with her for a number of years, who is a Christian and uh, trained uh, at Newbury Park in the drama portion and had done all the drama over and off of Moore Park Road by the Players Theater there. And uh, I got to do a part with her, and her name was Amy Hoff, and we got to, you know, interact together. I talked to her about the Lord, and she, she knew the Lord, but she was struggling in her walk a little bit, and I invited her to come to the house on Wednesday nights when a number of people come over for chicken and rice and said, you know, get connected with our, our, our college ministry. And at the time, I think she was 22 or 23. Well, uh, uh, Tuesday night, I don't know if you heard on, on Potrero Road, the accident, Amy died. She died. She died. Drunk driver, and he, he walked away from it. Two, two people were killed, a boy and a girl. And Amy was the girl. And, and all this happened. And, and Kathy had shared with me, Kathy Gravino said, you know, I saw her just the day before, and she was living in a hotel. And I just, I feel like I didn't reach out to her enough. And my response back to Kathy on the text was, Kathy, She's not living in a hotel anymore. And she's not fearing for her life in the back seat with a drunk driver speeding down Potrero trying to prove himself. She's with the Lord. No more worries, no more doubts, no more struggles. They're all gone. She's with the Lord. How can I say that? Because I I really pushed her to find out what she trusts in. Is appointed once for a man to die, then judgment. Everybody in the room is going to die. You, you, people can't explain death. We can't explain why everybody has to die on the earth. It's baffling to people. Why must everyone die? Because it's said it in the book of Genesis. You eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, dying, present, you will surely die. Progressive. It's appointed once for a man to die, then judgment. You'll stand before your creator, which is the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. If you can't deal with that first verse, you're going to have a problem with the whole rest of the Bible. And by the way, that first verse will establish your life forever, whether you accept it or reject it. Because either there's a God and you're accountable to him and you're going to see how to get right with him or you reject him and go on your merry way and pretend like you whistle past a, a cemetery like nothing's going to happen. But you're going to die. And you don't turn into nothingness. And no one's ever returned. Karma, no. Next life, sorry. We're not evolving. I mean, if that works and, and Middle Eastern, you know, religion is working, why are we getting more and more screwed up? And the reality is, you need a Savior. You're a sinner. Oh, I'm not a sinner? Yeah, no, you are. No, I'm not. No, no you are. I don't like being called a sinner. I don't care. I mean, I do care that, you know, you're, I upset you in one sense, but I would rather you understand the truth and be upset with me than for me to blow sunshine your way and you die in your sins. You are a sinner. I am too. Everyone is. What's a sinner? Sinner is someone who isn't perfect. Does that help? Okay, good. Is it that, is it that insulting to you? And... And if you think that you're all that and more, I've said it before, if you think you're all that and more, how about if we show a videotape of what you do in secret? Or how about what you think in secret? You feeling good about yourself now? Come on. That's the reality of who we are. You can dress up and make yourself, and look, we're all in the same boat. So how do, we, how do we stand before a holy God when we fail? We're the only creatures in all of his creation who commit cosmic treason. We rebel against him. 
We, we remove him from our schools. We deny him in our governments. We, we kill the children that are created in his image. Uh, we destroy the elderly when God commands it. We're to, to honor them in their old age. Uh, we, we, that's what we do. We destroy this image of marriage that is a microcosmic picture of Christ's love for the church. And we're mocked and ridiculed, but we would surrender doing what's right so that people would no longer pick on us. And, and, and now we're going to stand before God and tell him that we're faithful servants in a world that's battling against him, a world that's embedded in evil. And there is evil. There's good and there's evil, trust me. I, I've, I've looked at it face to face. And we're not all improving. And so the question remains, what are you trusting in? What is your salvation? I'll finish with this last thought and I'll move on uh, to the next verse. I shared with you a story when I was a lifeguard. Kid was caught in a rip current. All of his friends were laughing at him in the beach. I swam out to him. It was cold. It was at the end of the day. I had multiple rescues that day. I was tired. The kid didn't listen to me. He flipped me off, got caught in a rip current, and got sucked out. I was just about to let him just go. The guy says, you got to go. I'm the rookie. I went out with my Peterson tube, swam out there. I'm shivering. I'm cold. I hand him the tube. I say, grab this. Let's go in. He goes, I don't need it. All his friends are laughing at him on the shore. And he said, I don't need it. He's, he's purple. And he's overweight. And he's sucking wind. And I know my job. And I know that he is about mm, three minutes from dipping under the water. And he stinks at swimming. He's not making any headway. And he's getting further and further out while we're both sitting there. And his pride is freezing me and exhausting him. And I just sit on the tube, and I just wait for him to just sputter, cough water, and he starts panicking, and his face and shock gets on his face, and he's grasping, and I'm far enough away that he's not getting anywhere near me. He says, "I I need help, I need help, I need help. And I said, you say please. I wasn't a Christian at the time. And he goes, please, please, please. And I hand him the tube, and he grabs, he goes, why did you do that? I said, because I have been out here freezing and I knew you needed to be saved, but you were more concerned with the laughter on the shore than you were with the reality that you're drowning. You said, please, now let's go in. And I brought him into shore. He gets to shore, they're still laughing and he looks at his friends, he says, you're not my friends, you're laughing at me. He said, this guy saved my life and he grabbed his stuff and he left. And I would just say to you, What is your hindrance in receiving a Savior who declared himself to be who he was? We have the more sure word of prophecy. There's over 3,000 prophecies pertaining to Christ. If you take eight of those and fulfill them, being born in Bethlehem, being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, being crucified, coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, whatever it is. All those things that were prophesied previous to his arrival in the New Testament that had to go down to the exact man that he'd have to come from the lion of the tribe of Judah and would have to be declared and both his mother and his father had to come from that lineage and all those things laid out. Just eight of the over 3,000 prophecies, just eight, is covering the entire state of Texas, three feet deep, silver dollars, painting one red, throwing it out there, parachuting a blind man in, and they find that red silver dollar. And you want to tell me you don't buy it? You know why you don't buy it? It has nothing to do with the facts. It has to do with your pride. They're laughing on the shore, and you're drowning. Get your head right. David understood in the midst of a trial, and I have questions for you. When all hell breaks loose, and you're about to die, if you're going down Potrero Road, and some knucklehead's driving, and you're going to go into a heavy equipment, and you're about to meet your maker, the question is, are you saved? The Bible says, you believe in your heart, confess with your tongue, Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. How does he save? Very simply, he pays the penalty and the price for your sin and my sin when we receive it by faith. His righteousness is put on our account. It's, it's put on our account. It's imputed. He takes our sin and covers it and pays it. The debt is paid. And now you can stand before God and you're righteous right in him. And God says, enter into your rest, thy good and faithful servant. You can't earn favor with God. You'll never do enough to make him happy. His son already took care of that. Why are you going to try to earn it? Because it's your pride. You have two options. You can try to earn salvation by saying, I don't need Christ. I'm a good person. 
You may be good compared to me, but compared to Christ, you are pathetic. And it's not hard to be better than me. Or you may just deny God and drop your whole plan that you're an atheist or he doesn't exist and you're going to say that the earth was billions of years and just for DNA or you know, dionucleic acid to be created, they, they say it's, it's uh, 10 to the f- with 5,000 zeros behind it for the amount of time it would be required to come up with this intricate development of, of just a unique single cell in a human. And, and 1,200,000 tons is burned off every second from the sun and you want to call the earth billions of years old Let's just add 1,200,000 tons back over billions of years. And by that time, I imagine the earth is touching the sun. And you're telling me life just happened in a closed system. You are an idiot. You are an idiot. And I didn't say that. God did. We covered that. And you're not an idiot. You're a fool. Idiot's different. You're a fool. You have the capacity to understand, but you refuse to. You're a fool. And it's your pride. You are afraid of the laughter on the shore. You're afraid of the laughter on the shore. The question is, what is your salvation and what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Today's a day of salvation. Then David says in the second verse, with all hell breaking loose. And by the way, when your best friend betrays you and your wife leaves you and your, your, your dog runs away and the, you know, the country song is your life. Right? When the country song is your life. Can you, can you sing this? This is a song. Truly my soul waits silently for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock. What is a rock? A rock is bedrock upon which you build your house. And a house and a foundation is only as strong as the bedrock on which it's built. We know all the houses in and around. You okay? Uh, okay. Why don't you take him out, Brett? We can pray with him out there. That'd be good. It's okay. He'll pray with you. And so at this point, pay attention. At this point, what you have with this idea of of he alone is my rock, you have all the houses in and around Thousand Oaks that, remember, they pulled the rebar out and the foundations are cracking. Some of you own them. You know what I'm talking about. Well, this this is built on a firm rock. And he says, he is my defense. What is your defense? The attack's coming. Death is marching on you. What is your defense? And then David says, I shall not be greatly moved. Twelve years ago today, our nation was greatly moved. Weren't we? Every plane in the United States of America was grounded within 10 hours. Every plane in the United States was grounded within 10 hours. Over here. It's okay. Come on, come on. Look at, look at this. Pay attention. I'm up here. I'm okay. Every plane was grounded within 10 hours. Yeah? And how did that happen? 19 men with box cutters brought this nation to its knees and stopped everything. What happened to our defense? Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. Where was our defense? We'd remove God from the, from the schools. We'd remove God from our positions of government. Uh, we, we now are killing, we've, since 1973, over 70 million babies. We look out for, the, uh, all this is happening, and, the, and then where's our defense? God won't be on your side unless you're on his, right? The Bible says, righteousness is also nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. And when the wicked rule, the nation groans. Now, I say this because... This is the same nation that took on a two-fronted war when we were attacked and we had the 22nd largest army in the world behind Romania. We raised our Pacific fleet from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, refitted it, took on a two-fronted war of two fascist nations, brought them to their knees. We only, we were liberators, not occupiers. We left those countries, established republics, representative form of government, and only asked for enough ground to bury our dead. And that was Japan and that was Germany. And then we went from being the 22nd largest army in the world to being a superpower in less than five years. And what what happened after Pearl Harbor? The president of the United States of America led the entire country in prayer from the White House in Jesus' name. We had days of fasting and seeking God. You read Dwight Eisenhower's letter before the troops did the invasion of Normandy. 
and the recognition of God and seeking His face. You listen to the prayers of Roosevelt over the radio in the fireside chats and you'll, your mind will be blown. And today to find any vestige of God remaining in every, any form of government is hard to do. It's hard to do. And we're greatly moved. I mean, we're, we're 19 men moved this nation. And I want you to look. In the last 12 years, our production has decreased and our our debt has increased. They, they rocked our, our world. It's just been exponential. Just take a look at it. And so David says, how long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like leaning on a wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast down from his high position. They delight in lies and they bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Absalom would say to David, Dad, I love you, and I, I swear I'm going I'm to serve the Lord. And, I, and, I, and, and he's just telling him everything his dad wants to hear, and he's, he's getting ready to just stick it to him. Ahithophel, Ahithophel, for over 10 years, he plotted this. You see, Ahithophel's son was Eliam, and Eliam's daughter was Bathsheba. And David committed adultery with Bathsheba and that humiliated Ahithophel and he pretended like everything was fine with him and David but he never forgave him because David was responsible for killing his, his grandson-in-law and humiliating his granddaughter. And he was going to get him back and he waited 10 years. He said nice things to his face and was ready to attack him when he had the, the opportunity. And David just said, you know, you can do what you want but when you trust in the Lord, the people who are going to attack you... I'll be standing when you're all dead. And David, as an elderly man, could barely cross the brook Kidron. And Ahithophel's counsel was thwarted. He went home on his own accord, put his house in order, and hung himself. Absalom ended up getting his hair stuck in a tree, and Joab stuck him with a spear. And every man was dead, and David was left standing. And he was, he was old at the time. And a man who trusts in the Lord is going to be saved. Verse 5, he says, a repeat of verses 1 and 2, 5, 6, and 7 is a repeat. And notice what he says. He says, my soul waits silently for God alone. They call this the alone psalm because uh, alone or only, it's, it's my soul only, 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 and alone. It's like only in God will you find this. So he says, my soul waits silently for God alone, only for God, no one else. Wait for him. Don't wait for the cavalry. Don't wait for the pastor to call. Don't wait. Just wait for the Lord. For my expectation is from him. God isn't going to let me down. He says, he only is my rock and my salvation. He repeats it. He's my rock and my salvation. I stand upon him. Look at what David says. He says, my expectation is from him. He is my rock. He's my salvation. He's my defense. All those things together says, I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. God is a refuge for us. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. David at this time, David at this time is realizing that this is where his strength is going to come from. When you're young, you're invincible. You think you can speed at crazy levels and that your body can be filled with alcohol and you're invincible. You think there's nothing you can't do. And God, every now and then, just gives you what you wanted. And you're not invincible. But when you're older, you're supposed to be wiser. Because you realize, I remember the first time my nephew Sam Blair, the Navy SEAL, I used to pummel him when we wrestled. I'd just take him down. We'd go all the time. I'd do moves on him and all kinds of things. It was the 4th of July, and he had just gotten back from training and all that, and I took him on, and I thought, uh, I think that's my last go-around. <laughs> I had a sweatshirt on. He finally got it over my head. He got me down. I'm like, that. Ah, that's it. And that was it. I didn't, I didn't need to go any further. 
I didn't need to go any further. We're, I, I got it. And now at 49, I'll take on Michael, my son. I'm going a little bit more with Daniel, but I'm giving, you know, he's starting to get a little harder. And they want to wrestle because they're trying to prove themselves, and Dad's supposed to do that, you know. But the older you get, you go, you know what? I got nothing to give you, and I don't even know if I can get up the steps right now, quite frankly. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't even know, could, I might need you to get that pudding to my mouth. And where do you go in those times? The Lord is your refuge. He's your strength. He is, your, he, is, he is who you're to trust in. And that's where David was. He was elderly. And then finally, he, he ends by telling everybody who's with him, listen to me. He says, listen, this is for all of you. Trust in him, people, at all times. Pour out your heart before God. God is a refuge, not just for me, for you too. I want you to go where I found rest. Listen, I just endured the attack of my son, my best friend, and everybody else in the kingdom. And I just want you to know I, was, I never lost any sleep. I just, I sought him. And, and even when Shimei was spitting on me and throwing stuff at my face, I still trusted in him. And I waited silently and even said, my soul, wait silently for God alone. Verse 5, he's telling himself, he's speaking to himself. He's going, listen to me. No, you shut up. No, you listen to me. Wait silently for God alone. What does that mean? That means hold every thought captive to the mind of Christ. You want to go babble to somebody. You want to go bend somebody's ear. You want to go get revenge. Be quiet. And that's all going on in your head. No, no, you calm down. You wait for God. Now get into the Bible and you wait. You listen for him. You spend time in his word. Turn off the television. Turn off the radio. Get on your knees. This is going on in your head. And you think, I got to call her. I got to call him. I got to call the pastor. I got to call. No. Calm down. Open up the line of communication with the Lord and spend time in his presence. Remain there quietly, even when everyone is attacking you. Don't come down to their level. Don't long to break their kneecaps. Calm down. Tell your soul to wait silently for God alone. The scripture says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. And then he goes through this whole thing. He says to the people at the end of verse 8, he says, Selah. And we know what that means. Meditate on this. Take it in. And then this is how he concludes. He says, verse 9, Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they altogether are lighter than vapor. I just want to ask you right now, we're going to do not trust in oppression nor, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, don't set your heart on them. I mean, look at the scripture says. It says, it says, surely men of low degree are vapor and men of high degree are a lie. Uh, high degree, what, you got a nice suit? You got linen and ink, which is money, in a bank? When you die, you're buck naked. You, come, you go out the same way you came in. Death is the great equalizer. You're not taking anything with you. You leave all your treasure behind. No U-Haul follows you to the cemetery. It doesn't. And if they're weighed in the scales, they're all together lighter than vapor. You are chaff that the wind blows away. You're a gnat on the butt of an elephant. You're gone. You are a withering flower in a summer heat. You're finished. That's what we are. I'll prove it to you. Name one pyramid. One person that a pyramid in Egypt was built for. Um, uh, Tutankhamun. No. Mm -mm, No. Uh, uh, Ramses. Which one? When did he live? Don't know. But they were going to take it all with them. Guess what? They left it for the grave diggers and robbers. That's why we get to look at it in museums. And it's rotting. They're a vapor. And I don't care if they pulled their brains out through their nose with little hooks and then they filled them with all kinds of you know, ingredients to keep them just because they're going to go in the afterlife. I don't care if you're in Vegas at the bodies display. Have you seen that? Those are people. They're playing poker. They got them different. It's awful. Vapor. And David says, get your eyes off the temporal and on the eternal. And then he closes with this. Verse 11, God has spoken once and twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God. Bless you. Power belongs to God. Doesn't belong to you. 
Oh, I'm a powerful person. Do you know what I could do to you? Nothing. I don't care if you have a gun in your hand right now and you want to come shoot me. I am immortal until God's done with me. Now, I'll have to pass through the sovereign hand of God, and if he wants me to die, he'll die. I'm I'm good with that. But you're not going to kill me. I'm going to fall asleep and awake in heaven. And you're going to be sitting there holding a revolver looking like an idiot. And you're going to have to deal with that. You're going to have the guilt of a widow and five children. And you're, you're a big man or you're, you know, whatever. And by the way, there's a few people in this room that are armed. They'll get you before you get to me. <laughs> Just saying. But you look at this picture. Power, power belongs to God. You have no power. It's on loan. It's on loan. And what you do with it, you'll be held accountable for. And then he says, also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. If these people want to get right with you, God, that's up, up to you. You were merciful with me when I committed adultery, David said, and when I committed murder. If you want to be merciful to them, I understand. For you rendered to each one according to his work. You're going to stand before God and give accounting of your life. He's going to render to each of us according to our work. And that's the psalm. And that's how you deal with life when you're under, under pressure and when everyone's disappointed you. Calm down. Take it to the Lord and, and remind yourself who he is and that he's going to take care of it. And quit whining. Calm down. Amen? The bigger he gets, the smaller your problems become. And you don't need revenge. You don't want that on your record. We have 23 minutes. I'm going to take 20 of them, call it quits, and let you out three minutes early. I was thinking about the last portion of this text that says power belongs to God. Power belongs to God, right? Here we are 12 years after 9-11. Four planes. Just four planes and 19 men. Four planes and 19 men took us into oblivion, right? On the North Tower, it was American Airlines Flight 11. It had five terrorists in it. Went into the North Tower. A few short minutes after that, it was United Airlines Flight 175. Five terrorists in that one went into the South Tower. Shortly after that, they began to collapse after all the firemen had gone in. And they, as people were running out, they were running in. Greatest loss of life to any fire department in the history of the United States. 3,000 people died that day. At the same time, American Airlines Flight 77 with five terrorists went into the Pentagon. And then Flight 93, which is a United Airlines flight, landed in uh, Shankersville, Pennsylvania in a field. It was supposed to go into the White House. I'm, I'm, I'm touched by Flight 93 because, as you know, I'm a graduate of Fresno State University the Harvard of the San Joaquin Valley, Fresno State. And our alumni, Todd Beamer, was the man who said, let's roll. And he's the one who took down the four terrorists on that flight and allowed the plane to land into a field instead of the White House. He was a Christian. He went to Wheaton Academy and then went on to Wheaton College. Then he went to DePaul University and finally graduated from California State University, Fresno, in 2001. He was an account manager for Oracle. He was living in New Jersey at the time. He had two sons, David and Drew. His wife taught Sunday school at their church for six years. His daughter, Morgan Kay, was born four months after Todd's death. Beamer and other passengers communicated with people on the ground via air phones and cell phones and learned that the World Trade Center and the Pentagon had been attacked using hijacked airplanes. Beamer tried to place a credit card call through a phone located in the back of a plane seat but was routed to a customer service representative instead who passed on to the GTE supervisor, Lisa Jefferson. Beamer reported that one passenger was killed and later that a flight attendant had told him the pilot and the co-pilot had been forced from the cockpit and may have been wounded. 
He was also on the phone when the plane made its turn in a southeasterly direction, a move that had him briefly panicking. And according to accounts of cell phone conversations, Beamer, along with Mark Bingham, Tom Burnett, and Jeremy Glick, formed a plan to take the plane back from the hijackers and led other passengers in this effort. And later he told the operator that some of the plane's passengers were planning to jump on the hijackers and fly the plane into the ground before the hijackers' plan could be followed through. And Beamer also recited the 23rd Psalm with Jefferson, the representative from GTE. And according to Jefferson, Beamer's last audible words were, Are you guys ready? Okay, let's roll. And then we know that that plane landed in a field and that the White House was protected by four men who said enough is enough. We need to do what's right. We got in this mess because we're unwilling to do what's right. And why continue in this mess? Let's fix this. And here we are today, and there still isn't any buildings where the World Trade Center stood. We're arguing endlessly over this. Twelve years have, have passed. We still don't have anything there. The World Trade Centers were started in 1966 and completed in 1972. They were occupied by tenants in 1972. And here we're 12 years into it, and we, can't, we cannot come to terms and, and build anything there. And in the meantime, while we take 85-year-old octogenarian, you know, grandmothers from the Midwest and, and frisk them as they're going through air, air, airplane lines for TSA, we let Major Nadal Hassan declare himself not to be a terrorist. We protect him and we continue to pay him. While in this thin veil of religion and faith, They step over the bodies of of the 13 people he murdered. We are a nation that has no foundation anymore. We don't even know who the enemy is. Because we don't know who God is, and we don't know what's right and what's wrong, and we can't even get together in 12 years to build a memorial because we don't know who we're supposed to celebrate, and we're arguing whether or not a mosque should be built near that location. We are lost. We are lost. I thought to myself in relation to today. I heard a quote and I like it. It says, Our forefathers in faith did not retreat from involvement in society and politics. They did not turn civil government, the making, enforcement, and adjudication of laws over to Satan and those who serve him. They did not surrender the ministry of civil government to those who are in rebellion against God. Instead, they sought to base civil government and law upon the truth. They understood that God is the Lord of history who rules the lives of nations by his divine providence and that he is in authority over our nation as well as over all others. And they knew that our nation's civil government and law must be based on God's laws and principles of justice if we are to enjoy his blessings upon our land and people. So we come back to where we we began tonight, and that was Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. Now, if if you begin right there in the establishment of civil government, when socialists and fascists are in power, Christians die. 1040 window, longitude and latitude, where the majority of the Muslim world exists, Christians, it's a wholesale slaughter. They're being wiped off the face of the earth. Nobody raises a finger. No one says anything. I was interviewed today by the Ventura County Star, Tom Kiskin. He wanted to hear my opinion on churches changing their bylaws because gay marriage has been approved by uh, judicial tyranny. He didn't say judicial tyranny. I did. Six million California votes negated. How do you stand on that? Are you going to change your bylaws? I said, no. I said, I might be stupid and dumb and not prepared, but I said, I know why they're changing their bylaws. He says, why? I said, because they're going to be under attack. You can't redefine the, the definition of marriage without destroying the First Amendment. These are inalienable rights endowed by our Creator. The only government on the face of the earth that recognize that rights don't come from man, they come from God. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. What was the French Revolution? Liberty, equality, fraternity. If you're part of my fraternity, then we're going to allow you to have liberty. We're gonna, if you're equal. 
But if you're, if you're, you know, you didn't, we don't like you. What was the symbol of the French Revolution? The guillotine. Right? In America, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The only nation on the face of the earth where when you come here, whether, regardless of your ethnicity, the minute you become an American citizen, you're an American. If I go to ja- Japan, and I reside in Japan my whole life, and I become a Japanese citizen, I'm still not Japanese. I'm an American. I have Scotch background, but I'm American. It was the principle of freedom that established us and our recognition and our identity in God. That these rights don't come from man, they come from God. And that's what it was founded on. Now you remove that, and here's what I told the reporter today, and I told you I was going to rant a little bit. Here's what I told the reporter today. I said, you remove the definition of marriage and change it. You have now infringed on the First Amendment. And why is that happening? Because as the nation moves in a socialist realm, what is a socialist realm? It means that government becomes our savior. Cradle to grave care. We're going to take care of your health care. We're going to take care of your, you know, whatever. We're going to take care of all of it. More people on food stamps in the history of the United States. More people on, government is going to take care of you from cradle to grave. So government's going to have the power. And they're going to dictate. Who's going to stand in the way of that? People who believe that government doesn't give rights, God does. Oh, those people are irritating. We need to remove them. That's what they did in Nazi Germany. They removed Bonhoeffer, they removed Martin Niemöller, they removed everyone they could. That's why they had the purgings in China and the purgings uh, in, in, in Russia. And when socialists and fascists get into power, Christians die. Why? Because they have the audacity to say that rights come from God. And that we're accountable to God. We are creating a utopia apart from God. And by the way, people say, oh, when Christians are in power, people die. Really? Why? Why do you say that? Oh, the Inquisition. The Crusades. The Salem witch trials. How many people died in those? Combined, less than 100,000. How many people have died under regimes where God is absent? Billions. Don't feed me that. It's nauseating. That's the reality. And here we are today, and we're watching our nation, and we're in danger. And I shared with, with you a little bit earlier, a few months ago, um, Tom Daschle, who's the Senate Majority Leader, stood in front of the American public on 9-11, right, right when it happened, to comfort the United States. And these are the words he said. He said, he quoted out of Isaiah 9, verse 10, The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones, and the sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. And he wanted to comfort. The bricks have fallen down. The World Trade Centers have fallen down, but we will rebuild them. He says, we will rebuild them with hewn stones, stronger stones. And the sycamores have fallen, but they've been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. And he's thinking, wow, that is so inspiring. But you put it into context, he couldn't have said anything more horrible to the American people. Isaiah 9 is God's judgment on the nation. And the response of the people based on God's judgment is, go ahead, God, knock down the bricks. We, without you, will rebuild them with stones. Tear down the sycamores. We'll replant with cedars. We don't need you. Bring it on. So God judges. Interestingly enough, and I'll, I'll, if you've read The Harbinger, it's an interesting book. The ground of a nation's consecration is the, is the ground of its judgment. So when Israel is judged, the conce- place of its consecration was the temple, right? And so when Israel was destroyed, what was the place of its judgment? The temple. So what is the ground of America's consecration? It happened after the first inauguration of uh, George Washington. And he walked from the federal house a few short blocks. In tow was the vice president, uh, his cabinet, which was very small at the time, uh, all of the, the uh, Supreme Court justices, uh, the Senate, and, and the House. And they followed him a few short blocks to St. Paul's Chapel. And they, they all gathered in. And the, his very first act as President of the United States was to consecrate America. And you can read all the transcripts if you doubt me. Do your homework. He consecrated the nation to God. In Jesus' name, prayed for the whole country. President of the United States, on his knees, recognizing that. Consecrated right there in St. Paul's Chapel. And go, okay, good. So what? Well, what's interesting is the ground of a nation's consecration is the ground of its judgment. The only building to survive ground zero was the old stone church, which happened to be St. Paul's Chapel. Wait a minute, no, 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 no. The capital of, is Washington, D.C. It wasn't built yet. It was New York City. 
And they went from the federal courthouse to the old stone church, which happened to be St. Paul's. Only thing that survived. What protected it? It was a sycamore tree. And after the sycamore tree was destroyed, what did they do? They planted the freedom tree of cedar. That church, if you go into it, has nothing to do with Christ. And by the way, the World Trade Center's behind where they were built. It was the parsonage area of the property itself where the World Trade Centers were built. That's where the cattle grazed in the parsonage of the Old Stone Church, St. Paul's Church. So God is saying, hello. Now you can dismiss it. Dismiss it all you want. The nation was brought to its knees by 19 men with box cutters. I'll close with this last thought. Someone asked me the other day, actually it was last night, somebody said, why are you so emphatic about the New King James Version of the Bible as opposed to the ESV or the NASB or the Alexandrian text? And why are you so interested in the Masoretic text? And, and more so, I, I would almost say I struggle with the New King James Version. I would rather have the King James Version. But I would spend more time explaining to you the words, which I probably should do. And here's why. In 1611, when the King James Bible was created by King James in England, it became the centerpiece of everything in England. All of their dramas, all of their writings, all of their poetries, children were taught to learn through the King James Version of the Bible. It became the number one source of inspiration for everything that they did. The, the, the primer was established based on the New England, uh, uh, based on the 1611 King James Bible. And then when they came together in, in, the, in the United States, and they had the New England Primer, which was the number one source of education from the 1600s up until the 1930s. It was a book this big and that thick. Every single student in America was trained under it and had to do strictly with Scripture, all found in the King James Version of the Bible. It established a nation so much so that the, the, the language itself, which is amazing about the English language, the language itself is one of the craziest languages on the face of the earth. I'll explain to you. We polish the Polish furniture. He could lead if he would get the lead out. Both spelled the same way. A farm can produce produce. Both spelled the same way. The dump was so full that it had to refuse the refuse. Both spelled the same way. The soldier decided to desert his dessert in the desert. Okay. The present is a good time to present the present. And there's no time like the present. An army base, a base was painted on the head of a bass drum. At an army base, excuse me. The dove dove into the bushes. I did not object to the object. The insurance for the invalid was invalid. The bandage was wound around the wound. There was a row among the oarsmen about how to row. They were too close to the door to close it. Close, close. The buck does funny things when the does are present. Does, does. Okay. The seamstress and the sewer fell in the sewer line. The seamstress and the sewer fell into the sewer line. Sewer. Hello. See, I don't even understand it. I like what they wrote. Let's face it, the English language is crazy. There's no egg in the eggplant or ham in the hamburger, neither an apple nor pine in the pineapple. English muffins weren't invented in England or French fries in France. Sweet meats are candies, while sweetbreads, which aren't sweet at all, are meat. We take English for granted, but if we explore its paradoxes, we find that quicksand can work slowly. Boxing rings are square, and a guinea pig is neither from Guinea nor is it a pig. Sometimes I think all the English speakers should be committed to an asylum for the verbally insane. (laughs) Now, interestingly enough, that's exactly how it came about. You see, the English language is developed for the purpose of communicating truth. If you understood Elizabethan English, if you understood King James English, if you understood Victorian English, even up until the late 1800s, if you understood English, the English language, you would be able to write exactly what you wanted to confer in relation to what you had to say. And the person who would receive your letter would have no doubt about what it is you were trying to communicate. No doubt whatsoever. Truth would be transferred very clearly. Now today, through text, how many people have ever written a text that somebody didn't read right and there was an argument that ensued? Okay, 
Come on, show them. The rest of you just don't text. Because you're grunting. LOL. OMW. On my way. It's the, listen, it's, listen, it's the dumbing down of society. Why do they want to dumb you down? So that you can't read. Why? Because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. We don't read the Bible anymore. We have to make idiot, dumbed down versions that we can read. Because we're lazy. And it was the English language that transformed the world as we know it. And I have one minute and I'll do this. The creation of the Oxford English Dictionary began in 1857. It took 70 years to complete. It drew from tens of thousands of brilliant minds and organized a sprawling language into 414,825 precise definitions. But hidden within the ritual of its creation is a fascinating and mysterious story, a story of two remarkable men whose strange 20-year relationship lies at the core of this historical undertaking. First, there was Professor James Murray, an astonishingly learned former schoolmaster and bank clerk, and he was a distinguished editor of the Oxford English Dictionary Project. And then there was Dr. William Chester Minor, an American surgeon from New Haven, Connecticut, who had served in the Civil War, was one of, a thousand of, was one of thousands of contributors who submitted illustrative quotations of words to be used in the dictionary. But Minor was no ordinary contributor. He was remarkably prolific, sending thousands of neat handwritten quotations from his home in the small village of Crowthorne, 50 miles from Oxford, on numerous occasions, Murray invited Minor to visit Oxford and celebrate his work, but Murray's offer was regularly and mysteriously refused. Thus, the two men, for two decades, maintained a close relationship only through correspondence, and finally in 1896, after Minor had sent nearly 10,000 definitions to the dictionary, but had still never traveled from his home, a puzzled Murray set out to visit him. It was then that Murray finally learned the truth about Minor, Dr. Minor that in addition to being a masterful wordsmith, Minor was also a murderer, clinically insane, and locked up in Broadmoor, England's harshest asylum for criminal lunatics. And the story is one that I've read. It's amazing. It's called The Professor and the Madman. But let me tell you something about Dr. Minor. He was raised in New Haven, Connecticut to Puritan parents and was raised with the, the scriptures and raised in a godly home. He fought in, world, in, in the Civil War, saw so much carnage that he went insane and took his Civil War pension and started to use drugs and got into alcoholism and ended up in the seedy part near Oxford, England. And that's where he lived under, with prostitution, ended up getting you know, syphilis and everything else and, and went insane. But because of the intricacy of his education and what he had learned, he began to take that which his parents had instilled in him and wrote these things articulately. His mother had homeschooled him through the New England primer and the language that we have today has transformed the world as we know it. Everyone wants to learn English. And the purpose of English was to transfer truth. And even a man who had rejected the truth found the only significant point in his life when he spent time trying to document it. All that to say that a nation whose God is the Lord is blessed. You're going to have a language that will change the world. You're going to, but when, when Alexis de Tocqueville said, America's great because America's good, and when America ceases to be great, it'll cease to be good. He was the French historian who was the first one to ever coin what an American was. He said, I look for America's greatness in her seaports, in her, in her schools of learning, in her cities of commerce, but it wasn't until I saw her pulpits aflame with righteousness that I saw what made America great. America's great because America's good, and when it ceases to be good, it'll cease to be great. We're 12 years out of 9-11. We've already been given a wake-up call. We're at a stage where we either get engaged in the culture and take it for the Lord and establish liberty and set the captives free, even if we're mocked and ridiculed and prejudices labeled against us. Or we just sacrifice our liberty for security and we all wither and die together. I'm going down fighting.
9-11 is not going to be in vain. This is a country worth fighting for. Its ideals are worth living for. I want to see them reestablished. I want to see that established again. A representative form of government that declares freedom and liberty comes from God. And the people will know that truth, and that truth will set them free from the oppression of fascism and socialism that has been the responsible agent for the destruction of mankind for centuries. And you think we're not supposed to be involved in government. Oh, yes, we are. Any questions tonight? I'm done rambling. 8.30, on the nose. 8.31. Questions tonight? Disagreements? You can tell me later if you want. If you don't want to do it tonight, I understand. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and this idea of, God, you are our refuge. You are our rock. Lord, we will not be moved. It doesn't matter if the nation rejects you wholesale. We're your people. We're called by your name. And if we would humble ourselves and pray and seek your face, you promise, you declare that you will heal our land. And God, we have not fallen to our knees yet. We're still in the process of exchanging our liberty for our false security. We think the government's going to provide for us, and they can't when they don't honor God. Lord, you're the one who provides. You are our salvation. It's not in any government leader. It's in you and you alone. So God, I pray our eyes would be open and that we would come to understand these truths and live by them. And Lord, let the lesson 12 years ago be one that would be instilled deeply in our heart that we would not allow that lesson to be forgotten. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know what? Take time to thank a fire.